Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. like to thank W.J. Pierce for creating and performing our music. Uh, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live. Uh, this is your host, Alistair Cross, and I'm here with my co-host and collaborator, Tamara Thorne, and we're also here with Q.L. Pierce. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, before we introduce tonight's guest, I'm going to turn it over to Tamara, who's going to tell you what we're doing now. <clears throat> Sorry about that. We were doing weird, funny voices in the studio, and it's messed with us. <laughs> Okay, then I won't talk like this anymore. Um, okay. uh, we both have solo novels coming out, and my novel Brimstone is now available for pre-order in E and paper. It's a coming-of-age story that takes place in 1968 in a little ta- town called Brimstone in Arizona. The Brimstone Grand Hotel, owned by reclusive former movie star Delilah Devine, looms high on Hospital Hill, harboring long-buried family secrets that whisper of unimaginable horrors, horrors that will echo down through generations. Within the walls of the Brimstone Grand, the past has come back to life, and Holly Tremaine and her grandmother Delilah are faced with an ancient familial evil that rages just below the old hotel's serene facade, an evil that won't rest until it possesses Holly, body, mind, and soul. Now, Alistair's new release, coming out in July, is The Silver Dagger. It's book two in the Vampires of Crimson Cove series, and it picks up with the first book, The Crimson Corset, leaves off. Life in Crimson Cove has been good to the Coulter brothers since Gretchen Van Treese was staked and her horde of vampires scattered. But when she rises from the grave, the brothers are torn apart and their lives and the peace between them shattered. Meanwhile, a serial killer is stalking the little mountain town, leaving a trail of blood that leads to a truth Sheriff Ethan Hunter doesn't want to face. The streets are no longer safe, nor are the forested paths, for a new and unknowable evil has come to Crimson Cove, and everyone, vampire and human alike, must come together in order to survive. Alistair. All right, and the first book in that series is called The Crimson Corset. That is available at Amazon.com and everywhere else books are sold. And if you are a vampire fan and you like the series, be sure and check out its companion novel, Darling Girls, which is a collaboration by Thorn and Cross. And also, very quickly, our latest installment of our serialized novel, The Ghosts of Ravencrest. Actually, this one's called Ravencrest Exorcism. Uh, Retribution is the name of the last installment, and it's available now. Uh, again, you're listening to Thorn and Cross on a Night's Live. You can learn more about what we do at our websites, alistaircross.com, tamarathorn.com, and qlpierce.com. You can visit our mutual blog at thornandcross.wordpress.com. If you tweet, our handles are at crossalister and at tamarathorn. Uh, you can also visit us on Facebook at, on our Haunted Nights Live page. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at authorsontheair.com. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. And tonight, before we introduce our guest, I'm going to tell you a little bit about QL Pierce, who is going to be um, uh, in charge of tonight's interview. Uh, Q is our multi-award-winning co-host. She's the author of Scary Stories for Sleepovers and over 150 other books for middle grade and young adult readers. 
Her latest, Spine Chillers, is available now in ebook and paperback at Amazon. Uh, all right, without further ado, thanks, Q. It's, uh, it's, it's all yours. Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, we have uh, an epic story tonight to talk about, and our guest is Sandra Rostarola. She graduated from the University of Sydney with a BA in Applied Science and has an MBA from La Sierra University, but her YA debut novel is a fantasy. Her debut novel, Cecilia, from Pincus Books, won a Literary Classics Gold Award for Best YA Adventure and Silver Award for Best YA Fantasy and was a finalist for the Wishing Shelf Book Awards. And Sandra has made a a very generous special offer for listeners. If you give her a shout-out on social media, we'll give you all that information, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, um, by tagging her, She'll send you a promo code for her Audible audiobook, Wild Stocks Last. So it's a really fun opportunity. And I just finished reading Cecilia, and it is a fabulous read. So welcome, Sandra. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Q. And we can all guess where you're from. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Australia. Yes, indeed. But living in Los Angeles and have been... In America for quite a while now. Well, um, let's start off with um, YA fantasy is a unique area um, of literature, and it encompasses everything from sword and sorcery and fairy tales to Hunger Games-style adventure. Where do you think Cecilia fits on this spectrum? I would say Cecilia fits. I, I always classify Cecilia as a, I guess what I call a low fantasy. In that I, I'm not a high fantasy because I don't have dragons or, um, you know, hobbits or anything like that. For the most part, everything could be real. It's it's a futuristic. It is set in the future, but it's not necessarily sci-fi. The biggest fantasy I have is definitely the mythology. When we have it's a, it's a whole new mythology that doesn't exist in our world with the goddess of light and her dark shadow, and it goes a little bit steampunk when we get into the city of Vetus, because um, that's a, that's a regular 20th century city, but we're 200 years in the future, and so because there's no electricity or anything, it sort of has to run in a very steampunk, almost medieval time frame. Um, but as we do progress into book two, which I've just started, the mythology is going to get even deeper. And at the, at the moment, it's just arcing up the top. It's going to become uh-huh. more central as we continue on for book two and book three. Well, the so, myth itself, it it starts so almost like sweetly, a story <laughs> for little girls. Mm-hmm. And, and before you know it, it's like, oh my God, what is going on here? It's very fast paced. So, can you give us sort of a, a general, without giving a lot away, give us a general overview of sure. the, uh, the first? Yes, absolutely. So we have Cecilia. While she is 18 years old, I I deliberately, I mean, when you read her, you might think she's anywhere from 14, 15. She starts off very, very young, purely because she lives a very idyllic life within the Plockton Forest. And she just has no pressures and no stresses at all. She just 
goes around braiding her hair with flowers and reading fairy tales to the little girls. But then what happens is some soldiers come by and raid her village, burn it down, steal all the young men, which include her two older brothers, and as the sole survivor, there is no one else left that can go look for her brothers. So Cecilia takes on this role. The problem is she's never left her forest before, and she's not equipped at all to survive in the outside world. She has no idea what the outside world is. So that becomes mm-hmm. the journey of this young girl literally going from this little innocent girl to becoming a warrior that she ultimately has to be because she gets caught up in this much more intense prophecy, I guess, where she has to actually save the goddess of light from dying. That sort of becomes her role in this whole story. And so we, we definitely grow with Cecilia. She learns to, can I just say, kick butt by the end of it. Yes, yes, yes. As a matter of fact, I, again, it, it's very early in the book, but I was just um, really surprised by how what she was faced with was uh, having to take care of the the mess, let's say that the soldiers left behind, oh. uh, all on her own, and that she really did. It seemed like that aged her it was a a really um, interesting way to you know bring her up to uh, you knew that she was older she wasn't just a little girl and um, I know that the basic story was planned for another medium of dance because you had told me that so um, what was the genesis of the story So my husband's a composer. He works in film and television. Uh, Some of the projects he's worked on, he's been in the music department for Guardians of the Galaxy. That's usually the big one that everyone knows. Um, Otherwise, he's worked on a a show, a stop-motion animation called Supermansion through Sony, which is Brian Cranston's sort of pet little show. So as a Uh composer, his his dream that he's always wanted to do was to do a ballet. He's just always wanted to do that. And I went, oh, I put up my hand and said, I'll do your ballet story because a ballet story typically runs at four to eight pages. So I went, that's easy. I'm gonna, I'll do your ballet story. And so we actually sat down and, believe it or not, the core characters in Cecilia are inspired by Leonardo da Vinci paintings. So went through oh, there. Okay. And it's bit like the senators, there's, um, Leonardo's got, I think it's called Five Ugly Caricatures or something like that or Five... and. That's where the senators came from. One of them, one of those heads is female, so we have one female senator. The rest are males, and that's where the basic characters came from. And I mean, it started off with a five-act structure, which is what a ballet has. And I just started writing the story very lean. And every time I handed it over to Kurt, he'd say, "Yep, that's great. Keep writing." I'm like, "Hmm." Yes, yes, that's great. Keep writing. I'm like, hang on, I'm yeah. past that eight pages. Honestly, I'd gotten to 90 pages, and he turned around and said, yeah, I can't do the ballet anymore because he got so busy. Like, everything just came down on him, you know, for film score-wise. And I'm sitting there with uh-huh. these 90 pages. I went, well, what am I supposed to do with this? And he said, turn it into a novel. And <laughs> I've got to say, I actually did resist it initially. I went, no, no because... I only had everything on a very superficial level, I guess, if that's the word, and you mm-hmm. don't want to say that, but I didn't know the genesis of the mythology. I didn't know 
how I mean, one of the acts is to Celia inspires the people. I mean, how how is she going to do this uprising? It's easy in a ballet. In a ballet, you just go into that act mm-hmm. and the music. And but I'm, I had to come up with all the detail of how Cecilia was actually going to get the people that live in Vetus to all come together and choose to battle the army of Vetus, which is a scary thing. So it was a challenge. And so, Q, oh. when when someone says, you know, they love the book, because I did resist initially, um, it scared me to to go into that much detail. That and I, and winning these awards, it makes me feel like, okay, I guess I did something right with the story. One of the things you mentioned, you know, talking about it being a ballet, I noticed that the the fight scenes. Fight scenes are really, really hard to write. At least to me, they are because it's so easy to fall into almost like something silly. And um, that yours really stood out because they were choreographed to such great effect. You know, the character turning onto someone else's sword and and all of this. And do you do you think that? Um, that the background in dance helped with that, or is that just, did you have to work that one through? No. I, I, to be honest, I actually found writing the fight scenes really easy. And I guess oh. I need to thank Peter Jackson for that. I think I really do. I think with his his visual take on Lord of the Rings, and I don't ask me how many times I've watched Lord of the Rings before. I mean, I've read, mm-hmm. the, read the series and, and watched it. I watched all his behind-the-scenes what I thought was really funny with that is, is Fran, his wife, and I forget who he co-wrote with, when they were talking about writing the screenplay, because I remember at the time, see, that had all happened before I'd written Cecilia, and I'm like, how did they do that? How did the writers write such great um, fight scenes? But literally all they said is they went, oh, no, we just write in a screenplay, they fight. That's all we have to write. We know Peter's oh. going to do it. And I went, oh, that's all they had to write was, oh, they fight. So they actually didn't have to describe the battle scenes. So I just really took a page from um, Peter's visual style and made sure I just followed a character. Really, just, I, I don't know. I, I just have to thank Peter Jackson. For, <laughs> that's exactly well. how I wrote my fight scenes the same way he wrote his. So It was, it was great. It, and I was just... Um, just couldn't put it down that, that old saw but it's true it was really great so I would like if you would uh, for you to read a little bit so we can uh, get drawn into that world absolutely absolutely uh, it's probably I mean I'll give a little bit of a setup I guess um, just okay. to let you know this is probably about mm, a fifth into the book, a quarter into the book, where Cecilia has actually been... She gets captured by an assassin who's supposed to kill her, but he can't kill her because they're connected by this prophecy. Um, And the first half of the book is called The Awakening, and that's where both Cecilia and Amalad both wake up to who they really are and what they're supposed to do. And... um, I do have to let everyone know, all the readers know, this, this is actually also an epic love story as far as I'm concerned. I don't know if you oh, got yeah. that cute, but I guess that's why you cry. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, there, there is definitely an epic love story here. So we're to the point in the story where Cecilia's not quite his captive. He, he's sort of starting to realise that she doesn't have to be his prisoner anymore 
and he's starting to more look out for her as opposed to keep her as a prisoner, if that makes sense. So anyway, we'll jump Uh into it. A clap of thunder shook the sky. The rain turned to ice. Frozen balls the size of stones tore at their bodies. We can't stay out here, said Cecilia, shivering uncontrollably. Amelard's eyes dropped to her purple fingernails. With her safety seeming to be his priority, his warm hand once again took hold of hers and led her her over to the young stranger. Picking up his shrub-like cape, the young boy guided them through the thick brush to a trapdoor camouflaged by undergrowth. He lifted the door, tossed in his leafy outfit and waved for Cecilia and Amelard to climb in. The ladder attached to the well's wall disappeared into blackness. Amelard placed a restraining hand on Cecilia's shoulder. Quickly, whispered the boy. With the howling wind almost blowing her off her feet, Cecilia dipped out from under Amelard's grip and scrambled into the hole. Amelard had no choice other than to follow. When the boy closed the trap door behind him, the silence was welcoming. The pitch black darkness wasn't. Had she made a mistake entering this place? Too late to worry now, she had to keep moving. Within a few seconds, her eyesight became aware of shapes. She could see her hands, the ladder the stone lining of the round well. She looked down. A small yellow glow emanated from the bottom. The light belonged to the lit lit wick of a lamp just sitting inside the circular connecting tunnel. Removing his head covering, the boy dialed dialed up the lantern's flame, illuminating his greyish-white complexion. He was skinny, skinnier than any child from Plockton, but not emaciated. His anxious grey eyes darted between Cecilia and Amelard. This way, he whispered, motioning them into the tunnel. We'll sit the storm out here, said Amelard. We can't stay. The boy's words were cut short by the sudden roar of the wind. The door above had opened. Fear washed over the young stranger's face. It's a trap, said Amelard, drawing his sword. Oison, cut the light, yelled the gruff voice from above. The boy obeyed. The well went dark. He has a sword, says another. Cecilia heard a sloshing sound, like mud falling to the ground, followed by a grunt from Amelard. Lightning from outside revealed what looked like a pile of sand gliding down the ladder. The next flash revealed Amelard wiping mud from his face. With the final flash, Amelard's fist connected with the sand-covered man's eyes. The sound of the storm muffled as the trapdoor closed. In the darkness, Cecilia heard the thud of another person hit the ground, followed by a frenzied shuffling of feet and muffled grunts and snorts. Hold him down! Got him! There came a loud whirring sound, followed by a click-pop noise. A small spark provided enough light for Cecilia to see Amelard collapse to the ground. Amelard! she yelled. She could feel the gritty clothing of the Sandman as he grabbed her from behind. Something pressed against the side of her neck. I can't get it to her skin, came a frustrated voice. Cecilia tried to wriggle free, but the Sandman's hold was firm. Don't make this harder than it has to be, he whispered. Oisin, the light, said the other man. The dialed-up flame from the lantern erased the darkness, blinding Cecilia in the process. She felt her cuff rip from around her neck. Don't hurt her, said Oisin. Something cold pressed against her skin. She heard the whirring sound from before. Through blinding eyes, she saw a large shrub, its branched arms holding an object to her neck. This won't hurt. She heard the clip-pop noise much. A sharp sting bit the side of her neck. Everything went black. So, end of the scene. So she oh, wow. got captured. She got ca- captured by the ground people. <laughs> yes, yes. And um, you have so many different 
cultures there, but they all just, it all uh, works pretty seamlessly. That I don't want to give anything away, so I can't say what I want to say. That is, but, <laughs> um, now, let me ask you, what do you think are the key differences between uh, writing YA and writing adult? You know, it's interesting. I was having this discussion with a friend the other day and even a few people on Twitter we have been going around on that. I clearly one of the big things is word count. Without any stretch of the imagination is word count. And if, you, if you're writing fantasy, I mean, Cecilia's 94,000 words, that's considered at the high end. It, just, it still is. Yeah. I probably could have got away with it being 80,000. Um, but because it's fantasy, it, it can be longer. Whereas, you know, if you're writing for adults, you can go 150,000 words if you've got the talent. But for YA, no. And then the mm-hmm. other question that just came up with one of my friends is how many different points of view? I keep Cecilia in a limited third-person point of view. So we all, we're always in Cecilia's point of view. For book two, I'll be jumping into both Cecilia's point of view and Amalad's point of view because the two of them do get separated. But other than that, I'm not sure for YA you want to go into too many more points of view, whereas in adult, I mean, when you look at Game of Thrones, so many different points of view, like every chapter a different point of view. Um, And (laughs) certainly for a lot of adult female literature, you know, we've had things like Girl on on the um, Train and Gone Girl and a book I just read from the um, same author that did Devil Wears Prada, um, when life hands you Lulumons, she had three oh, points yeah. of view. So that's, I think that's the other big thing as well. Is um, oh, and well, YA you can get away with quite a few swear words. MG no, <laughs> but I think you know, oh, clearly language-wise, um, you can go mm-hmm. with adult. You, I don't think there's any limitations with where you, how that far is, you that push. That was something else. The language for this book. Um, when you first start reading it, you you kind of feel like you're in a, a medieval time period. Mm-hmm. But the way you wrote the language was um, was not that at all. It was you know a little bit you know here and there with different things were called different things, but um, there wasn't a a feel of where you were in time. It could have been anywhere in time. So was that because you were actually in the future? Basically, um, I didn't I didn't mind that people thought we were medieval. That was supposed not I don't want to say supposed to be part of it. The reality was Cecilia only knew what Cecilia knew. So one of those things, I'm not sure whether you ended up figuring it out, and I mean, I don't think he's telling the, the, the potential readers anything too much, but the, the yellow um, mantis that she would talk about, I mean, that in, for us is one of those big log things, you know, those big log yeah. that would grab a log. She doesn't know what that is. So the best, and that was a bit of a struggle for me because I had to think, wow, what does Cecilia know? She actually doesn't know a lot. She really doesn't. So I had to describe things just as she would describe them. Um, so even the outside world, you had to, you know, think. And, I, and that's possibly why it felt medieval-ish as well, because I just couldn't say what things were, what? because Cecilia yeah. didn't know what things were. Now, um, you have another book in work, right? Making mm-hmm. Friends with Monsters? Yes. Um, now, that's also YA, right? Actually, interestingly, 
I'm, I'm actually pulled it down to MG, and in the in the last few weeks, I've had lots of chats with um, different agents and everything. It's actually I've had several requests on that manuscript, so it's literally out at the moment. <laughs> Having people read it, my protagonist is 12, and I only thought it would be YA because my subject matter is dark, but. Um, no, I've pulled it down to MG actually, so it's a it's a middle grade. Okay, and I'm intrigued. What is it? What's yeah. the basic? So the, the the thing with making friends with monsters. So the premise of that is we have 12 year old Sam, and he wants basically nothing more than for his older brother, who's Ben, his teenage older brother, to just become the return to being the fun loving best body that he used to be. But the problem is Ben has a monster. And Sam has no idea how to help Ben get rid of it, but he has to figure out a way in soon because he's really worried this monster's going to turn around and swallow Ben whole. And the whole premise of this story is the underlying themes are suicide, depression, and mental health issues, but all spoken about in terms of the concept of having a monster um, without even using the word suicide the word doesn't even come up in the book mm-hmm. and um coming from a history you know they say write what you know this is a very personal story to me i was supposed to be writing cecilia book two um i was back in australia doing a book signing for cecilia book one when this whole conversation came up where my girlfriend was telling me that um her husband or her ex-husband did commit suicide and she said but she said the hardest thing she said Sandra I I don't the girls her daughters 12 and uh, 15 I think she said they Mm -hmm. just keep saying mummy why did daddy do it and I had a 15-hour flight back from Sydney to Los Angeles and I, I just couldn't that thought just kept running through my head just and out of that came monsters well, like what I call monsters, yeah. making friends with monsters, of just trying to tackle that subject matter and not maybe glorified in the way that I feel another book or at least the television series <laughs> glorified. Yeah. Um, I think everyone knows what I'm talking about. I don't want to dish on any other uh, work that's out there, literary work, but I, yeah, yeah I had a tough time with that particular. It's a very difficult, yeah, difficult. Difficult topic for um, middle grade, but they these kids just certainly have to deal with it. So, now I, before we leave Cecilia completely, I understand that you um, you workshopped the screenplay version and ended up in the top fifteen percent of uh, the Nichols screenwriting competition. So does that mean that Cecilia might be coming out as a film? Or? <laughs> Well, wouldn't that be lovely? I mean, certainly yeah. the whole premise of um, actually getting the IP a little bit further down by having the trilogy done is definitely part of all that because I don't – look, it's a hard nut to crack, right? I mean, I, my day job is I work with a production company. I work with a producer, and we're we're wrapping up a, a an independent film at the moment that's been shot in South Africa. So, I mean, I get it. I've got contacts, but it's not easy to sell, especially an epic. I mean, yeah. this is a big budget budget thing. So for me to get 
three books under my belt would definitely be a more interesting, more appealing for someone to, dare I say, like purchase, buy the rights to that. But, um, yeah. So you won't say no, but... Oh, absolutely (laughs) no. Definitely the whole point. I mean, seriously, I don't think... I don't know, I could be lying. I'm talking to primarily writers right now with you three. Have any of you not fantasised about your stories being films? They all play stories in our heads, correct? So (laughs) certainly certainly would not be against Hollywood coming and knocking at my door for that. But um, Yes. Well, the funny thing was I used to actually write screenplays. I mean, you know, that's how I started off with the spec screenplays. And now I tell my writer group, who are all screenplay writers, by the way, I will never write a screenplay again until I've written the novel first. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Oh. Um, you know, that's my stories. I've okay. got to write the novel. So I, I, I don't have an issue because, honestly, once the novel's done, it's so easy to write the screenplay. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, you're, Cecilia's very visual, too. So now I have one, one last burning question before we run out of time. Mm-hmm. And um, Alistair's cats and Tamara's cats play a huge role in encouraging them to write. I understand you have three cats. Do they play a role in your writing? (laughs) I can't believe it. I saw Sir Percival. That's his name, right? Sir Percival? Oh my gosh. I was looking because I just, before the call started, I jumped onto Instagram and I saw that you, I saw you there and I went, and the first thing I saw was your black and white cat. And I'm like, oh, I've got a black and white tuxedo, (laughs) princely. Oh, honestly, my cats, um, I I don't think I'd have an Instagram without my cats because they're my little rider buddy, my little girl cat, um, Noodle. She's, she loves that I write because she's constantly on my lap. So, um, yeah, you got to, I think you've got to have cats if you're a writer, right? Um. <laughs> or at least pets. I know you've either got cats or dogs. But, yeah, I, I um, love yeah. my cats. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of dogs out there staring through the glass. <laughs> okay, so we're going we're gonna to have to um, wrap it up now. I really appreciate you coming on. And um, for for everybody out there who uh, who would like to take advantage of your, your offer, I'm just, I'm going to tell them how to spell your last name. It's R-O-S-T-I-R-O-L-L-A, Sandra Rostrola. And I just want to say the quote from the back of the book, the last thing I'll say is, in the absence of good, there can be no evil, for there can be nothing at all. And uh, so people, you got to get out there and, and pick up this book and it's great, and thank you so much for being on. And um, Alistair, thank I'm turning you. it over to you. <laughs> All right. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for being on. Um, uh, very quickly before we let you go, can you uh, tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and what you do? Go to my website, which is S as in Sandra, L as in Louise, Rosterola.com, and everything is really simple for me. On my Twitter handles, Instagram, it's all SL Rosterola, and you'll be able to find me. And, yeah, that's all right. how you can find That's Sounds however good. I can find me. Yes. All right. <laughs> Uh, I, I found you, and I'm looking forward to uh, learning more about you. And uh, just so mm-hmm. you know, you are welcome back anytime. You are absolutely delightful. Um, 
so you know what? You you let us know when you want to come back for any reason. Well, thank you, thank you, Tamara. Thank you, Alistair and Q. Mm-hmm. Oh, delight! So oh, happy welcome. to have to have All met right. you, and it's wonderful. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye. You welcome. are welcome. Bye. Okay, bye. All right, and until until <laughs> next week, everyone. We wish you haunted nights, sweet screams. And don't forget to check under the bed before you turn off the light. Okay. All right. (laughs) Thank you for listening, everybody. (laughs) Night. Bye. Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross.